be opening your Bibles to Jude. We're going to notice verses 1 and 2 for just a few moments tonight or this evening. In beginning his letter, he started with Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. I think as we study throughout the New Testament, we come to a clear understanding that the early Christians were warned of a great falling away that was to come. Some of them did not live to see that falling away, but many of them did live to see that falling away, and it began with Christ's warnings. We notice in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 11, that He uh, spoke of the falling away of uh, false prophets coming in and how the love of many faithful Christians would grow cold and would dim, And but He said those who endured to the end would be saved. So there were going to be a great number of people fall away, but there were going to be some who remained faithful, and those who did endure unto the end would be saved. And as Paul said his goodbyes to the Ephesian elders, he was located in uh, the Ephesus Church of Christ for about three years, and it came time for him to move on, and he called those elders to him, Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 29 through 30, and he warned them. He said, I I haven't failed to... uh, tell you the truth, over the space of these three years, of course I'm paraphrasing, he warned them about wolves coming in dressed as uh, sheep, false teachers who would come in and would come from that group of elders. So it's going to rise from the eldership. And they're going to come in, they're going to teach things that are not uh, appropriate, things that are contrary to the doctrine of Christ, and there would be a great falling away. Of course, by the time Jude came along and John came along in the sense of writing their letters, their general epistles. It was no longer in the future, but it was upon them. The falling away had happened. And uh, the Antichrists had come and many false prophets were in the world. Notice what John said, 1 John 2 verse 18. He said, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now that's a very interesting statement. Not only is it talking about and and teaches on the subject of the Antichrist, there's not just one Antichrist. We're clearly stated here, there are many Antichrists in the world. Uh, The denominational world, particularly uh, those of uh, uh, the Catholic Church and similar religions to that would like for us to believe there's a single Antichrist coming in. And, uh, you know, and you hear about it in the political realm, don't you? On both sides. Both sides, conservative and, and uh, uh, liberal. I can remember back when George W. Bush became president, he was the Antichrist. When Obama became president, he was the Antichrist. Now, a lot of that may be true. But there's not just one Antichrist, right? There are several Antichrists that come into the world and will come into the world. And there's another interesting fact there that we learn. Not only are there several Antichrists, but there's not uh, not being one Antichrist coming, as it were, at the end of time. 
this verse tells us, along with the Peter's statement, Acts chapter 2, we're in the last time or the last days, right? Nicole and I were studying with a couple of Mormon uh, missionaries, and they were talking about the coming of the last days or the last times, and that's prominent in many denominations, if not most of them. And uh, we had asked about Peter's statement in Acts chapter 2, and they didn't really have an answer for it. And as I was studying this passage for this particular sermon, I said, well, there's more evidence. When John wrote this, he was in the last times, in the, the, the last days. That's the same what he's talking about there. Now, in that same letter, he exhorted them, 1 John 4 verse 1, not to believe every spirit. He said, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's talking about this falling away. Now we get over to John's second letter, and he identifies those false prophets or those antichrists. Second John 7, he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So at the time John wrote the letter, the Antichrists were the ones who taught that, that Jesus did not come in the flesh or that God did not manifest Himself in the flesh. Those were the Gnostics. Those were the Gnostics. They said, we, we have the answers. We know better. God can't come in the form of a human. Flesh can't inhabit uh, God or He can't manifest Himself as a person. That's absolutely a false teaching. Now, is that the only teaching that... They taught, well, that wasn't the only teaching they taught, but that was the one uh, most readily identified with that group of folks. Okay? And so we have a lot of people who are antichrist, and the definition of an antichrist is found in the name, right? Anybody opposed to Christ and His teachings. They may not even realize they're opposed to Christ and His teachings, but that doesn't mean they're not anti-toward what He said. Now, of course, while Jude intended to write of the common salvation, we see that in verse 3, he instead wrote to encourage the brethren to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. There wasn't going to be additional uh, revelation regarding the gospel system of faith. It had already been delivered. And I think that that it's of great importance for the church to remind and to be reminded about this common gift or this common salvation that we find in Christ. Now, much like Jude though, I think there are times when we ought to have pointed out to us and we ought to point out to each other things that need improvement in this life. And that's what Jude was talking about. Instead of writing of this common salvation, which is absolutely important, he saw it necessary to talk about some things that needed to be improved. Notice what he says in verse 4 of Jude. He explains, saying, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Christ. I think if the falling away was in gear and was very dangerous in about A.D. 64 when Jude wrote this letter. I don't think it's any less dangerous some 2,000 years later. We still 
need to be on guard. The church will always be threatened with apostasy and falling away, not just as individuals, but whole congregations. And so we need to take the the warnings of Jude and and, uh, apply them and, and make sure that we're watching ourselves and when we... When we need to make changes, I think that we need to make sure we do that. I think sometimes we lose focus. I came across uh, an illustration while I was looking at this passage and considering what Jude was saying. And I came across an illustration I used years ago. And I thought, boy, that fits perfectly with what we're talking about here, focusing and maintaining A man wrote, he said, when I lived in Atlanta several years ago, I noticed in the yellow pages in the listing of restaurants an entry for a place called Church of God Grill. The peculiar name, he said, aroused my curiosity and I dialed the number. A man answered with a cheery hello, Church of God Grill, and I asked how his restaurant came to have that unusual name. He said, well, we had a little mission down here and uh, we started selling chicken dinners after church to help kind of pay the bills, and it was a big hit. People began to love the, the chicken dinners, so eventually it was such a good business, we decided to cut back on the church services, and we just went into the chicken business. They forgot why they were there, didn't they? Didn't they lose some focus on what the purpose was? And so Jude is encouraging people don't lose focus. Now, Jude is encouraging them. In fact, the title of the sermon is The Encouragement of Jude. But we need to understand what his encouragement is. I think sometimes when we consider encouragement, it is solely based on making me feel better right now in the moment. And that is some encouragement falls into that category, right? We can learn some things and we can be uh, comforted in the moment and we can feel better. But there are some times in life we're not going to feel better. We're not going to feel better. When you when uh, you have a, a physical debilitating illness, you're not going to feel better in the moment, right? But you look forward to your body healing and feeling better. So the encouragement would be hang in there. Hang in there. Do your therapy. Do whatever the doctor says and you'll get to the point where you feel better. But what if you don't get to the point where you feel better? As we age in life, do... Do we ever get to the point where we don't feel better? Are we ever going to, are we ever going to get to an age and be old enough to where our better days are behind us? I don't think you have to be very old for that. I feel, I'll be honest with you, I feel like physically speaking, my better days are behind me. You know, I, I, I have some aches and pains at less than 50 years old that I didn't have 30 years ago. And so what happens when we get to be 70 or 80 or 90 or 100? I just read uh, uh, in the news the other day, a, a little old lady lived to be 106, and she she made it that old because she drank wine every day. Well, I don't think she made it because she drank wine every day. She probably had some good genes and good uh, characteristic traits in her DNA, so she lived a long time. But do you think she felt as good at 106 as she did at 46? There comes a time when we're not going to feel great in the moment. So where does the encouragement come in? The encouragement comes in when we say, but there will be a better time. When we can be together, we're not going to have these physical frailties. And so that's the encouragement 
Jude is giving. He, he, say, he is saying there's going to be rough times spiritually speaking. In fact, you're going to have a time when you're going to suffer persecution. Uh, uh, the, uh, the reign of Domitian was going to happen in about 30 years. And so he's warning the people, not particularly about Domitian, but just in general, you're going to have problems, but you can work through that. John said that. And so as we look at the encouragement of Jude, I want us to focus on some of the statements that he's made in these first two verses. And the first one I want us to notice for just a few moments is he mentions those who were summoned by God. He's not writing to the general population of the world. Brethren, he's writing to Christians. He's encouraging Christians. And it may not make them feel better in the exact moment, but he's encouraging them to maintain and keep their focus on what is important. The Church of God Grill forgot why they were there. They went into the chicken business. That's not how they started, was it? They lost a little focus. Those who have been summoned have been called, and that's what he's talking about. People who have been called uh, and who have accepted are these people. Everyone's called. The world has been called by God to be faithful, to accept Christ Jesus, and to be obedient to His plan of salvation, but not everybody accepts that call, right? And so we're talking about the summoned or those who have accepted the call. And it's a holy calling. Notice what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. He said, speaking of God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's a holy calling. We can't maintain it. We can't reach it by being the the best people we can be. We can be the best people we can be, and we ought to be the best people we can be. That won't get us to heaven. We have to do the things according to what God has done. And in eternity, before time ever started, God put into plan a way for which we can be justified. We've been called into the church... And that, the church, was the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, 10 through 11. I think that uh, it is a shame when denominations in the world talk about the church like it was an afterthought. It was an afterthought. Look, it was an afterthought. No one defeated Christ. He gave Himself to be a sacrifice. He fulfilled His mission. They didn't sneak up on him and defeat him in some way. If he could be defeated once, he can be defeated every time, right? And so he wasn't defeated. But those who accept the call and are added to the church will be saved. That's what Luke said, Acts 2.47. The saved are added to the church. And it's the same process. We're baptized into Christ, meaning we're baptized into His body. We're baptized into the church. The saved are in the church. And if we're outside the body... We're not going to be saved. And so, when we look at this idea of the, the church being an afterthought and merely a physical, uh, a physical entity, Christ dispelled that. He dispelled that before He ever was uh, murdered, John 18, verse 36. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, 
My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. I don't think it can get much more plain than that. We have almost every denomination looking forward to a coming kingdom when Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years in some form. Now, there are different uh, changes to that uh, theology, but that's the general idea. And so, but Christ said, my kingdom's not of this world. So what are they looking for? What are they looking? They're looking for something that doesn't exist. The kingdom is here. We've been translated, Paul told the Corinthians, into the kingdom of His dear Son, out of darkness into the light. And so we're called by the gospel. Uh, that's why we've been given the Great Commission, Mark 16, 15 through 16. We're to go into the world. We're to teach the gospel so everybody knows that they have been called. And that's very consistent, isn't it, with what God wants. He wants all people to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. It's consistent with the fact that He offered His own Son as a ransom, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And it is the consistent with the Lord's unwillingness that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. That doesn't mean that's some kind of a universalism teaching right there. He, he's not willing that any should perish. That's why He sent His Son. But it's up to us to answer the call. And upon being called, we have to make a decision. Am I going to commit? Am I going to do the things He's asked me to do? And, you know, there's a pattern demonstrated in the Scripture, isn't there? We hear the gospel. It produces godly sorrow because we understand and believe Jesus is who He said He was. That He gave His life and that causes us to regret godly sorrow that we hurt God. And that produces faith, right? We know the Scripture. We talk about it all the time. We know about repentance leads to, uh, godly sorrow leads to repentance, confession, of Jesus Christ reigning over that kingdom, not a coming kingdom. He's reigning right now, being immersed in water, living faithfully. That's commitment, isn't it? We have to decide and sit down. Am I going to commit? Am I going to count the cost? Am I going to go to war without knowing how many soldiers I have? Am I going to build a building without understanding whether I have enough money to to finish it or not? I have to count the cost. And of course... Having done that, I have to commit to other things. I have to commit to Jesus initially, through initial salvation. Then I have to commit for the rest of my life. Am I going to make my calling and election sure? Am I going to ensure that I remain saved? That's the next commitment, isn't it? We commit to initial salvation. Okay, we do it. That's done. We've been added to the church. Now here's the big commitment. Am I going to maintain that? And that's what... Uh, Peter was talking about Second Peter 1, 2, and uh, uh, all the other uh, preachers of the gospel. That's the big commitment. And so the teaching is the calling, the accepting is the election. We, if we uh, elect to accept, God will save us, right? And Peter said, Second uh, Peter 1, 10 through 11, if we do all those things he listed, we won't fall. And that's the thing we need to understand. So Jude is encouraging diligence in that faith that was once for all delivered. And to be able to gain that, we need to allow our personal faith to lead us in that direction. 
Someone wants to notice that Jude talked to those who had been summoned, the faithful who had accepted the call. And then he began to talk about the sanctified. That's a wonderful word. That's something that we need to truly understand. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, first of all, what we need to understand about sanctification is it is a precious gift. It is priceless. It is the most wonderful thing that we can ever have happened to us in this life because sanctification is directly related to salvation. We have to be saved before we can be sanctified. Now, the Greek word that we get that uh, uh, translation from means to be set apart for a special purpose. And I think therein lies the real meaning behind sanctification. Not all who are summoned are sanctified. Why is that? Well, not all elect to be sanctified. We don't have to be sanctified. God's not going to make us do it. But we need to understand that some who have been sanctified give that up. And so, just because we've become sanctified does not mean we remain sanctified. But again, let's get back to what that word means. I think therein again lies the true meaning. Let's ask this question. Is the Christian who has fallen back into sin, is that Christian being used for a special purpose? No way, right? No way. That Christian who has fallen back into sin, is he or she in some way set him or herself apart from the world? Now remember, sanctification, special purpose, set apart, different. That's the true meaning, isn't it? So we can see if we go back into the world, we begin to behave like the world. We're no longer a special tool for God to bring about glory for Him. Paul warned those in Galatia to that effect, Ephesians 5, or Galatians 5.4. They wanted to go back to the Jewish religion. They decided they didn't want to be set apart for God's glory in the church. They didn't want to be used for a special purpose. They wanted to go back to something that was no longer in effect. He said, if you do that, you've fallen from grace. So sanctification is a precious gift. But it's also a process, isn't it? I think sometimes we can be a little hard on each other, and we're not using this for a crutch, but we need to understand the process. People who obey the gospel and are brand new to the church, are they at the maturity level spiritually as someone who's been a, a Christian for, say, 50 years or 20 years or even a year? No, there's a different levels of maturity, right? It's a process, but that process has to be a continuing process. What do we do if our, uh, our newborn babies stop growing at six months? Haven't gained any weight, not getting any longer, Wearing the same clothes that they've been wearing and the same, uh, uh, the, the same size diapers that they've been wearing for the last little while. Nothing's changing. Nothing's getting bigger. Is that a, is that an issue? Does that concern us? Scares us to death, doesn't it? Scares us to death. Being a parent is full of scares us to death, isn't it? It never stops. And so we need to understand being a babe in Christ is a process, but it must be a continuing process, right? If a, if, a, if a child stops growing when he's six, there's an issue. 
Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Good friend of mine, Matthew Jones, who was here uh, when we did our door knocking campaign. His uh, new baby is about a year or so old. She's got a she has a, a physical problem where she's not growing like she ought to grow. Now they were able to get a handle on it, and I don't have, I can't recall the details. I was just so glad that that they were able to to address that. But that was a that's a real problem, and so uh, Peter addressed that right. He described uh, the sanctified as the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. So it's a process handed down from the Spirit. We see that in First uh, Peter 1, 2. And so we have to be sanctified through the truth. Thy word is truth, John seventeen seventeen. We know that we're to be filled with that Spirit, Ephesians five eighteen. We are to... Allow the words of Christ to dwell in us richly, Colossians 3.16. So it is by the instruction in the Bible that this process continues to take place. Now, were there times when people weren't growing properly? Well, of course there were. We read about it in the Bible, right? And so we have to allow this process to happen from the time of conversion and continue to happen. Do we ever get to the point where we where we can sit back and say, I have arrived. I am where I need to be in the sight of God. I don't have to worry. I don't have to spend time studying the Scripture. Someone well into their 90s, could they sit down and say, I've, I've done all I need to do. I have gotten there. I don't think so, right? Paul said that he continually reached forward continually tried to grow. So this process needs to continue. Now, as we look at what Jude was talking about, he's addressing those who have been summoned. He begins to describe the sanctified, those how that happens and the, the process and the progress and all of that. And then he encouraged his readers. Now this is where the great encouragement comes in. To remain secured in the faith. They needed to hear that. They needed to hear that. Have you ever been discouraged? Spiritually speaking, we're not even talking about the, all the other discouragements in this physical life brought about by sin. We're talking about just uh, spiritually. Have we ever been discouraged? It looks like what we're doing is not, not having any effect on anyone. Well, that was happening at that time. And so he's encouraging them. Maintain your security. You've, you've been summoned. You've been sanctified. Now, I want us to notice the description of the security of which he speaks. Now, security is from the Greek word, or preservation is what the word that is used in the King James Version. That means to guard from loss or injury. Now, do we guard things that are not important to us? No, it doesn't matter. We don't. You know, we don't lock up the garbage can when we pull it out to the to the road, do we? We want someone to come and get that stuff. I remember one time uh, years ago, I read about in New York City, the, the sanitation department was on strike and no one was getting their garbage picked up. And it happened to be around the time of Christmas. And so this one individual came up with what I thought was one of the greatest ideas I'd ever heard. He'd pull into a public place, he'd leave the windows down, the doors unlocked, and he wrapped up his garbage in boxes and put a bow on it. 
That's how he got rid of his garbage. Someone would come and get that. They thought they were doing something great. Now, would he have left those things in his car if they were actual Christmas presents? No, he would have guarded them against loss. But he wanted someone to come get the garbage, right? Because it doesn't mean anything to us. It's a, it's a problem. It's in our way. And so we need to guard against loss, uh, meaning we need to guard ourselves. We need to guard ourselves, and we need to guard ourselves from Satan. And we remember the description, 1 Peter 5, 8, he's a roaring lion. He's seeking those whom he may devour. He wants to murder us spiritually. And so we need to be on guard. I think that in that particular passage, and with what Jude's talking about, he is directing the Christian to remain focused on what Satan is doing and what we ought to be doing, right? Let me read to you something that happened in 1952. In 1952, a young lady waded into the Pacific, uh, Pacific Ocean. The girls, are, I'm in trouble now when I get home. Her name was Florence Chadwick. 1952, she was determined to break another swimming record, and she had broken several of them up to that point. But no one up to that point had ever crossed from the channel between the Catalina Islands and the California coast. It was 26 miles. And so she wanted to be the first woman to do that. So she waded out into that uh, uh, water. She had been the first woman to cross the English Channel. And it was a bad day. It was, it was uh, The water was extremely cold. It was very foggy and overcast. And, and on top of all of that, there were a bunch of sharks that were trailing her. And so she had a crew of people who had, on several occasions, had to... Keep the sharks off of her. So she's battling all of that. But she's out there swimming. And she swims and she swims. And after she had swam for 15 hours, she still hadn't reached. And she didn't see the coast. She didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so she became discouraged. And when she made her last stroke in the water, she told her family and supporters, she said, I cannot go on any further. And so they helped her out. They consoled her. They told her, it's okay, you, you, can, you can do it again, but it was so foggy. And then immediately after they uh, put her into the boat, they began to speed up. They were a half a mile from the coast. Half a mile. She had swam for 15 hours, and you know what happened? She lost her focus, and whether she realized it or not, she became discouraged because she couldn't see through the fog. Sometimes we can't see through the trouble. When all we really need to do is rely on God, be faithful to God, and go through the trouble, come out on the other side, and remain faithful. And that's the encouragement that Jude was giving those people. Now, do you know what she did? Two months later, she was the first woman to swim from the Catalina Islands to the coast of California. She could have done it before. Do you think she had a half a mile left in her? Sure she did. If she had had a little encouragement, if she hadn't lost her focus and she just said, I'm going to be right here, I'm going to keep on going. A good friend of mine I've known for years and years was a former Navy SEAL and he was telling us a little bit about being in the SEALs. And, and I don't know if any of you ever seen, there's some videos that you can see on YouTube about this Navy SEAL training and they train out in California and, 
And the water in the wintertime is extremely cold off the California coast, and, and they had to get out in that water. And, and so he was telling me one time about doing the training on the beach, and they set them all down in the, in the water, and they were one right behind the other, and they were trying to stay close to each other for the body warmth. And people were, that's one way they used to get people to stop. They, they don't want people who have to have an easy time. They want people to quit. And, but if you have the initiative to stay in there, they want to help foster that and they want to build that up in you. But if you don't have it, they want you out because you'll get someone killed. And so I was talking to him about it and I said, how did, how in the world did you stand that frigid ice water? He said, I determined. When I sat down in that water that I would be there until they drug my dead body out of that water. I was not going to get up. I was not going to quit. I was going to die right there in the water. And he made it. He made it. That's focus, isn't it? You can't get too discouraging for that individual in that situation. I'll die in this water and they can haul my body back home. More power to him. I don't think I could have done it. I don't know. Maybe I could have. I've never been there. But we need to be encouraged. And so if we're going to assure our security, let's stay focused. Let's don't let the things of life throw us off. That's easy to say in the moment, isn't it, when nothing bad's happening right now. But we need to maintain that. Life has some ups and downs in it. Do we ever get on each other's nerves a little bit? I don't know, I think maybe I get on Kathy's nerves quite a bit. I don't know. She, she's too nice to say it. But, you know, she just perseveres and focuses on what she needs to be doing and puts up with it, you know. And so he talked about the description. Now he gives us the duty. And we'll end on this. He spoke of the duty of those who initially accepted Christ and became Christians through obedience to the, to the law of Christ. Notice what he said in Jude 21. He said, Keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Do you know whose duty it is to make sure I keep myself in the love of God? It's my duty. It's our duties as individuals, isn't it? You can't keep me in the love of God, I can't keep you in the love of God. We can encourage each other to do that. But it all boils down to the individual. My friend who was the seal, all those other men that were freezing in that water couldn't keep him in that water, but he could keep himself in it. And all those around him who were quitting, had enough, it ain't worth it, he said, I'll die right here. I will stay in this water. That is what the message was in the Revelation. You get into Christ and you die right there in Christ. Nobody can make you get out of Him. Matthew 10, 28, Nobody can pluck me from the hand of the Father. I will stay right there and I will die in the faith. And that's our message, isn't it? In order to maintain or remain secure, we have to cooperate with God and we have to be obedient. Sometimes we might get out of that. Has anyone ever left the church and come back and then made a great impact on it? Do you think Peter had fallen out of fellowship with God when he denied the Christ three times? Absolutely. Absolutely. He wasn't pleasing to God. He was not in fellowship with God or those who followed after Christ. But what he did 
was he repented of that sin. He asked God to forgive him. And he is one of the greatest examples of someone who says, I'm going to sit right here in this water and I'm going to die until they say, I can get out. And that's what Peter did. And now Peter is reaping the benefit of that. And we can join him at some point. We've got those who we love going on. Let's, let's don't be too sad. We're going to miss them. But let's look forward to being with them again. That's the encouragement, isn't it? Does the hurt go away? Not in the moment. But boy, it will be good when we finally come together. Those in Christ have been summoned. They've been sanctified. And it is up to each of them to remain secure in the love of God and secured in Christ. And it's our duty to remain in His hand. It's our duty to to love the brethren. It's our duty to do the work. It's our duty to maintain and stay focused. Listen, sit in the water until they drag you out. Because you died there. Sit in Christ until this life is over. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation, do that. Don't be outside of Christ. Come back to Him if you've done something that that you need to be forgiven of. If you need to make a public statement of that, we'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive you. And we can continue on being focused. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.